Are you bored with those video games? Has you finally caught up on all your Netflix shows? Are you tired of Snapchatting with your friends over and over again while you stare at the same four walls? You're no longer in the state of Illinois alone, but now you've entered into the state of insanity. You're about to climb the walls. You might be thinking about jumping up and seeing if you can peel the paint off the ceiling before you go do something crazy. Stay tuned because I have a 25 to 30 minute diversion because you've just tuned in to HistoryCast. This is your host, your whispering wizard, your tour guide through time, Mr. J. Hughes. Travel with me through the sea of time. Let's look for answers, explore salacious rumors, juicy legends, and powerful secrets. Let's get down to the bottom of what it really means to be human. Welcome. Power is my mistress. I have worked too hard at her contest to allow anyone to take her away from me. Napoleon Bonaparte. Known as Puss in Boots because of how thin and gaunt he was, Napoleon Bonaparte found himself at the precipice of history. The new constitution in 1795 didn't make everybody happy. In fact, the mob in France was back at it again. This was a common theme with France, the mob uprising, causing difficulties. On the 13th of Vindemari, according to the French calendar, this mob finally hit the streets, and they were ready to do some damage. So, Napoleon, who was now second in command of the interior army, was called upon to act. He left the theater where he was, and he went out to gather his men together to take action against the mob. With his cannons, he rolled them out into the streets, including his infantry, uh, his snipers, his artillery, and rolled them out in the middle of the insurrection, and he opened fire. It was a big, daring move, but it worked. It brought order. And at this moment in time, that was something France desperately needed. In the end, it did cost 300 lives that day. But it was a moment... That's, that, that he stepped into the wider stage of history. Bonaparte, spelt with a U as he spelled it then, had fully emerged into the, into the light of history with his notorious tri-cornered hat and a whiff of grape shot. So Napoleon hadn't been idle from 1789 to 1795. We've seen him already and we've met him and his rise. When Napoleon had been at the military academy, he had already shown that he had a lot of skills when it came to organizing things. In fact, sometimes Napoleon gets a very bad rap as if he was really nothing more than a warmonger. But in fact, that's not true. Napoleon was very organized um, and he had skills to understand what needed to be done in a battle. He understood the power of, of artillery and artillery, as he was using it, was a kind of a new thing to warfare, which certainly was something he was going to exploit for his purposes. So he came up the ranks, military, uh, from military to lieutenant, and then to major. And, uh, and after he takes a stint away from the French regiment, um, because he goes back to Corsica. And there in Corsica, that's his first allegiance, because remember, Napoleon is not a Frenchman. Napoleon is a Corsican, and the French have taken over his island of Corsica. 
So he goes back and the man that he's idolized his entire life, thinking this is the kind of person I want to be, this man turns out to be somebody that Napoleon doesn't respect and actually someone who ends up betraying Napoleon. So Napoleon returns back to France, recognizing that I no longer have a place in Corsica. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hitch my fate with France instead. And so he returns in 1792. He doesn't have a whole lot. He spends a lot of his early life. Napoleon's kind of poor. He's got his books. In fact, Napoleon was a prodigious reader. Uh, he was an avid reader throughout his whole life. When other kids were out playing and goofing around, Napoleon was sitting in his house going through books and uh, looking at Rousseau and Locke and Hobbes and reading Julius Caesar's accounts of his campaigns and Frederick the Great. Napoleon had spent his entire life wanting to make the stage of history the way that Caesar had done. And um, Hitler, of course, tries to draw comparisons later on between himself and, and Napoleon. He says, well, you know, me and Napoleon are very similar. We had similar goals and, and, and ideas. But in fact, that's not really true. Hitler is a poser. To consider Hitler to be someone uh, who was intellectually brilliant is really a massive overstatement. Hitler was not really a reader. Um, he was remarkably lazy. And on top of being remarkably lazy, he never really read to learn. He only read to reinforce his own stereotypes about the world. So, so there's no comparison between Hitler and Napoleon. They're two different things. But Hitler wanted to make that, okay? Now, when Napoleon goes back to France, he gets involved with a battle called the Siege of Talon, and he has his artillery wing, and, um, and this is an enormous uh, moment for him because he executes a brilliant, uh, a brilliant um, army maneuver that ends up earning him the rank of general at the age of 24. Now, that sounds like a really big accomplishment, and it is a big accomplishment, but I would like to make mention that France right now is going through generals rapidly. And so it wasn't terribly hard to be Napoleon's age and actually make general by the age of 24, somewhere around 24, 28. Um, and over his lifetime, Napoleon will fight in 60 to 70 battles. I want you guys to think about that. Remarkable, incredible, okay? To think about a man who's li who lives through all of those battles. And he wasn't one of those guys that set up on the hill or set back in his tent and told people what to do. Napoleon was out in the fray. Um, bullets constantly just missed him or, or cannons just came close enough to almost got him. Napoleon was always, he was one of those lucky people who rolled the dice uh, and went out and took a shot at it, okay? And here, let's just roll the dice and see what happens. And just so happens, historically, he turned out to be a pretty lucky character. So he used this thing, the, the cannons he was using, uh, again, using this type of technology was kind of new. They used a type of shot that wasn't just a cannonball. What it was is it's called a grape shot. And so they would have hundreds of bullets packed into this one thing in this metal case. When this cannon would fire, that, that, uh, the big, bullet, the big uh, canister would explode and all the shrapnel and bullets would fly everywhere, which would tear right through an army's front line. I mean, it would shoot out across a lot of places and it could go up to 600 yards. So, you know, you're talking about an enormous, enormous explosion and a lot of people get hit pretty quickly with the grape shot. This is deadly, and it had a whiff that, like an odor that came along after they would fire the cannon. It was called whiff of grape shot. So you'll see that's used, and that's what they're referring to is when the cannon was fired and the canister was released and the explosion occurred, okay? Now, Napoleon's star um, is starting to rise in France. 
he has made his way to general, and he's eventually put in with the uh, the Army of the Interior as second in command. And now he meets a, a woman who becomes an important character in his life. He, the One of the great, really, you could maybe say the great love of his life. That's definitely arguable. He meets Josephine. Now, Josephine, is he immediately falls in love with her. To kind of give a little bit of a backstory, um, she was actually not born in France. She was born in Haiti in the New World. And her grandpa uh, was a sugar, he grew sugar cane there. And so she was born on one of those. And she was very poorly educated as well. And her her first husband liked to point that out to her. Well, you know, you're stupid. You don't have the education everyone else has. Because it wasn't easy to get that kind of education in Haiti. She had a beautiful smile as long as she kept her mouth closed. So... It appears that her mouth was full of rotten blackened stubs because of all the sugar that she ate as a kid. Um, And so she, uh, you know, as long as she kept that close, she was considered to be a beautiful woman. Her husband, her first husband, was very cruel. He was very abusive. And during the reign of terror, he went to the guillotine, leaving her with two children. So in 1795, she's in a particular state where she needs someone to help take care of her, to protect her, to provide for her. And Napoleon was just up for the job. And he was not, uh, he was not her, her speech. She wasn't crazy about him, but um, he loved her. Okay, um, she had a reputation for being a consort to lots of different men, and Josephine definitely uh, had lots of boyfriends, from what we can tell. And in early years of their marriage, she actually cheated on Napoleon, and she didn't love him actually in in the beginning, but he was nuts about her. He thought she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. So they married in 1796, and um, Napoleon goes off to fight in campaigns, and she picks up with her her boyfriend, her her lover. Okay, they call him Charles the Hippolyte, and she has a, a kind of a string of lovers. Now, once Napoleon finds out, he's kind of devastated because he thought that he thought that Josephine thought better of him than that, and so he he starts to also have a string of affairs as well, and leaves behind a few illegitimate children along the pathway. A couple of sons, actually two of them, uh, that were born to him later on in life, people would remark on how how much they looked just like you know the emperor. And we haven't got there yet, but stay with me. So, but their marriage grew over time, and there was definitely a mutual admiration that develops at the end of the marriage uh, between the two of them. Um, he, you know, he took care of her. Uh, he and her children. He used to send wildly provocative love letters that sometimes would end up making it in the hands of publishers and get published. You know, they're kind of they're kind of crude, uh, but this uh, they 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 make quite a pair. So whenever he meets her, they don't have a lot of time together in the very beginning to start building their marriage because France is at war with pretty much everybody. Okay, there's this coalition of nations that are working and coming against France, and so this is now going to send Napoleon out into the out into the field to uh, begin his campaigns, which is going to make him famous. Now, there's a lot of campaigns we could talk about. We could talk about his maneuvers. I mean, he's such an interesting character. I don't do a lot of military history. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's not not something that I'm interested in how battles move or function. Uh, So it's not something that I focus a lot of attention on. I don't think it's stuff you're going to remember anyway. I want to give you more of characters because I think characters drive stories. But in this case, um, Napoleon's first campaign is with the Army of Italy. And so he invades you know, Italy, which is under Austrian control, and he brings it under French control pretty rapidly. Um, he shows himself to be a very decisive commander, and he earns the nickname Le Petit Corbral, 
which is something that he actually kind of likes, okay, which means the little corporal. And the men give him that name. It's a kind of an affectionate name, which happens a lot of times in battle. Like Caesar's men used to call him Old Baldy. Um, General Lee's used to call him uh, Granny Lee. Um, and these were all strangely affectionate ways in which the soldiers uh, connected with their, with their general. So um, Napoleon, what, sometimes we think about him, the little general, we think, well, the little corporal, we think Napoleon is being very, very short. We're often told that in history classes, Napoleon was very short. Actually, yes and no. I mean, by our standards, yeah, he was pretty short. He was about 5'6 to 5'7, right around there. So comparatively speaking, he's not very tall. But around the time, that's actually a pretty average height. So the reason why he's oftentimes considered to be short is because the British like to make fun of him. And they would draw characters of him and make him really short to kind of like diminish his, his uh, gifts and talents. So um, he conquers the territory of Italy, and he turns out to not just be a conqueror, but he actually turned out to be a good administrator. For example, he abolishes tariffs, uh, he abolishes feudal dues and lands that he takes down, he helps to bring down their debt, reorganize their finances, and he imposes religious freedom for Jews and Protestants, abolishes inquisitions and equality before the law. Does that surprise you? Because I think the story you've heard about Napoleon sometimes hasn't really given him uh, a full rounded view. I'm not saying he wasn't a warmonger. He's totally a warmonger. But he's a little bit more than that. And um, he's complex. And there's a lot of his ideas that are wrapped up in the Enlightenment. So the, the conquest of Italy becomes his first campaign. He writes home, France is elated. This is the first general they've had in a long time who's got some real skill out on the field. So Napoleon... After sticking it to the Austrians, he now turns his eyes to his lifelong foe, the English. He wants to damage England. And um, he actually had thought originally about planning an invasion on English soil. But it was too risky um, moving across the water. The French were not a naval power to be reckoned with at the time, but the English were. So he thinks to himself... Here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to go attack England, but I am going to attack England's commercial interests. We're going to go down and march into Egypt, and we're going to take Egypt away. And when he gets to Egypt, this turns out to be a great match. He, he loves uh, the Muslims. He loves Islam. He's very fascinated by Islam. Some believe that perhaps he converted to Islam there. I don't know that that's true. Because he said at one point in his time, I remember him. I remember reading something in Alan Shalm's book on Napoleon Bonaparte, and he talked about this. And he said that Napoleon once said that when he was in Egypt, he was a Muslim. When he was in France, he was a Christian. So I don't know that he had any real strong religious convictions. He just kind of pandered to it. But he loved the order and the structure and system of Islam, and he did highly praise it. And he learned a great deal about it and had a great respect for the religion. And um, he's very successful there. His most successful battle is what they call the Battle of the Pyramids. And he's able to bring Egypt. After this battle, he battles with the Mamluks, and he brings it under control. Now, um, in 1798, he thinks, okay, since I've conquered the Mamluks, what would be the difference if I went up through Jerusalem and I started to attack the Ottoman Empire? He gets a little ambitious. This becomes the first of his blunder. Really, he only lost like seven of his 60 to 70 battles that he was in. Now, later, later that year, 
um, you know, once this, he starts marching up into that area, the Royal Navy arrives and their ships that they have, the, the, the French fleet that's sitting on the Mediterranean, I mean, they give them a shellacking. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a beat down and it's, it's awful. So he's kind of stranded and he tries to take the Ottoman stronghold of Acre, but Acre is just too strong and he doesn't have the capacity to take it with the men that he has. He fails. He fails miserably and he gets his butt handed to him. And uh, as this is going on, he realizes this is not a campaign that he wants to get himself uh, involved in any further. So he starts to turn his attention back home because there are things going on back home that are important. And uh, so he, he, uh, his letters and exploits are now the talk of France. And the directory is now starting to think, you know what? There's problems with Napoleon Bonaparte. He's taken Egypt. He has given the Austrians a shellacking on every battle that he's been in. He has taken Italy, and now he's becoming powerful. People are talking about him. We need to take care of him and get this problem under control. So he's now becoming a problem, just like his, his, his idol in life, Julius Caesar, becomes to Rome. Now here's my math history headline, the Rosetta Stone. Now far from a brute, Napoleon is, is constantly borrowing, and I'm using that in quotation, from other places and sending home historic pieces to the Louvre, which is a museum, which is a, at the time a new museum in France. He finds a piece that has hieroglyphics, Coptic, and Greek while he is in Egypt. No one knew how to read hieroglyphics, um, but with the other languages parallel on the stone, it became a possibility to break the code. So he sends it to the museum, and there's a genius at the museum. Uh, he, he brings it in, he deciphers hieroglyphics, which will be the first time in hundreds of years that it could be read. His name is Champollion, and he's only 14 years old when he begins. Within four years, he will have revolutionized historical study by breaking the code. Later in life, he will stand up against the French regime after Napoleon's death and face charges of treason. Luckily, he was eventually pardoned. So there's the story of how we learned hieroglyphics. Napoleon had something to do with that. Now, when Napoleon comes back to France, it's becoming apparent that the Directory doesn't like him, that the Directory is starting to be suspicious of him, and, more importantly, that the Directory is weak and they are hindering France. So Napoleon comes back to Paris with the idea of abolishing them. So he gets together three men, three important men, to stage a coup to overthrow the two houses of government uh, and the constitution of year three and the weak directory. They form the, a little triumvirate, which is just like Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey. So he's, he's copying almost to the detail, almost to the, the letter, the things that Caesar uh, does when he takes Rome. So Francis then, uh, one, they are able to stage this coup. It's a, it's a huge story. I don't want to get into that because that would take us a lot longer to tell than I have. But I just want to say this, he's successful, okay? He actually almost gets killed, uh, but he does succeed. And France comes under the rulership of three consuls instead of having all this, this mess, okay? And he puts the other two out, to the, out, you know, out of the light in the dustpin of history. And by 1800, it's clear that although there are supposed to be three men that are ruling the country, it's really just him. And uh, he creates a sweeping new set of laws that transforms France's legal system, the whole legislation, legislative you know, structures, basically uh, falls into the hands of, of him as the, as the consul. 
And um, he begins to transform France's legal system. Now, of course, he still has a problem because the rest of Europe doesn't appreciate Napoleon as first consul. They don't like Napoleon at all. And they don't like the French Revolution. And they want to get the Bourbons, the Bourbons back on the throne. And so war is going to continue throughout Napoleon's reign because they just can't let him have it. It's a, it's a, it's a thing of pride. He's not a noble. He doesn't have noble blood. He doesn't deserve to have it. And they are going to malign him. They are going to uh, do evil things uh, against him. They're going to fight him. They're going to do everything they can to stop him. And look, he's incredibly ambitious. He's incredibly narcissistic, and he is a dangerous, violent man. There's a lot of facets to Napoleon to consider. That being said, you know, is he worse than the than the, than the Bourbons? I mean, that's that's a bigger question. Okay, so his fame is now outside the realm of our understanding. Like I could not explain to you exactly how famous he is, but he is first consul. He's a celebrity. He stomped Austria. He stomped Italy. He is. Uh, he is now in charge, but he doesn't just want to be another ruler that gets put out of power. He doesn't want to be just ousted later on. If he's already took it, he wants it. He wants to have it. And he loves, he loves power. As I read in the beginning, power is my mistress, he said. So he takes control of the press and he, and he stifles dissent. This is something he does to stifle them publishing things that he doesn't like. And the royalists um, are favorable to Napoleon at first, when he takes over his first consul, they're like, he's just going to restore order to France, and he's going to bring a bourbon back. Uh, but when, uh, so the person they want to bring back is Louis XVI's brother, which would be known as Louis XVIII. And uh, Louis XVIII wrote him and told him, say, look, thanks for cleaning up France for me. I'm ready to come back and rule as king. So Napoleon writes him back and basically nicely tells him, if you come back to France, it'll be over 100,000 dead Frenchmen's bodies. So, um, they don't really want him back, it seems like, or Napoleon doesn't. So, again, while Napoleon is a, is a warmonger, it's, it's, it's hardly fair not to mention the powers of Europe were angry because of his lack of royal blood. And uh, so he has, he has no right to rule in their minds, but a new friend starts to slowly kind of change the tide. His new friend will be Tsar Alexander. Now, Tsar Al now they, in 1800, Alexander, the grandson of Catherine the Great, will ascend to the Russian throne. He will become Tsar. Now, his father, the Tsar Peter, is kind of an idiot. Tsar Paul, rather, is kind of an idiot, like his grandfather was. And the nobles actually force him to advocate by stabbing, bludgeoning, and strangling him to death. So, Alexander was probably in the house when it happened and just probably didn't care to get involved. You know what I'm saying on that? Just, I don't know, wasn't around. He was, interestingly enough, an Enlightenment thinker, though. He loved the philosophes. He was, he, uh, he was still like kind of caught between two worlds. He still wanted to follow the old traditional Russian way, but he also had this interest in the, the burgeoning intellectual conversations that were going on in the West. Now, Alex would be best to describe him this way. He loves humanity, but he's not crazy about people, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, Napoleon, uh, you know, wants to be friends because he thinks to himself, you know, look, Alexander and I, we could stick it to the English via trade. And he wants to impose, and he does impose, this continental system that will boycott English goods everywhere. Now, they won't meet up face-to-face -face for another seven years from 1800, okay, from his takeover. But when they do, a bromance of the age is about to begin. 
They'll spend every night together, waking hours, going to operas, talking late in the night, meeting up for breakfast. He even told Josephine, if Alexander was a woman, I would take him as my lover. Ladies and gentlemen, they are happy together. But at the time before they meet, in the beginning of this, before him and Alexander hook up and become the, the bromance of the century, um, Alexander is still pretty much a frenemy of, uh, of, of France. I mean, he's still kind of at odds with them, and it's going to take something that happens, and you'll see what happens. And the English have yet to do him dirty, so he's still kind of in the mix. So in 1800, his friend Alexander is just coming into power, and about this time, hereafter, Napoleon is going to slowly begin to make this this uh, bromance. He's going to uh, find his way right into Napoleon's heart. We'll talk about that. By 1802, Napoleon needs to get his power further solidified. So he makes it, he, he, he uh, gets a vote, he, which makes him consul for life. Now he rigged the vote, and you know, so it wasn't entirely fair. Uh, his puppet senate that he put in place decided that he should not just be consul, but he needed to be more than that. He needed to be emperor. So in 1804, Napoleon and Josephine are coronated by the Pope, who is at the moment in good relations with Napoleon. Now he's going to fall out and they're going to have trouble in and out because the Pope doesn't do what Napoleon wants to do. And Napoleon doesn't like it when people don't do what he wants to do. So the empire is actually very stable under Napoleon. And it seems like the next logical step is to nail the coffin shut on the plotting, scheming, conniving uh, Bourbons who attempt to get back, uh, get their throne back. Um, and so he, this is this is going to be some of the steps that he's going to take, and eventually it will mislead him in the wrong direction. And and just to kind of keep this in mind, you know, he when he when he's emperor, he doesn't even let the pope put it on his head. He takes the crown and he puts the crown on his own head. He goes, the pope can't give me the crown. I earned it. I got this crown by my own fighting in my own hand. I don't need the pope to give me it. So this is kind of the person he is. Um, now, the coalitions of Europe, once they find out Napoleon is now making an empire out of his newly conquered territories, France, Italy, and, um, and Egypt, of course they're furious. So he has a lot of battles awaiting him because they're going to form a coalition and they're going to try to stop him. Here's a, there's an image that I have, and you can see that on the, on the Hyberdoc where Napoleon takes the crown from the Pope and puts it on his own head. Okay, so that's where I want to stop. Uh, we will begin looking. Uh, we will begin looking here in the future, where we talk about what happens to Napoleon and how Napoleon makes him uh, begins greater conquests, uh, makes an extraordinary extraordinary thing across Europe, and then ends up having a major catastrophe, and that sets him on a collision course with destruction. All right, guys, thanks for listening, and make sure to do the homework, on uh, the vocab work, uh, for episode eight. All right, take it easy.